0: Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open them. Uh, We are going to be actually in two scripture texts this morning. So we're going to be moving around just a little bit. Uh, We're going to be in Genesis 2, uh, which of course is in the Old Testament, and in in, in John 18, which of course is in uh, the New Testament. And so go ahead and move to uh, Genesis 2. As you're going there, quick poll uh, sampling uh, this morning. How many of you like to garden? Any gardeners here this morning? People like to garden. Okay, a couple of you uh, I know like to garden. So, whether you garden or you don't garden, I think we all appreciate. Uh, a a well manicured garden, a garden that, you know, whether you're taking care of it or somebody else is taking care of it, you can just kind of either see it or you go into it, you experience, and you're like, this is just a beautiful uh, garden. Uh, when things come alive, there's new life, it gives us hope, it gives us encouragement. Uh, there's something about a garden that just really energizes us and, and brings us uh, to experience life. Uh, recently, I ran across a story uh, about a guy out on the East Coast in New Jersey, uh, an elderly man, and uh, he every year would plant a tomato garden, and uh, he, he was getting older and older and older, and then his son started helping him take care of his uh, tomato garden, and this continued on as just a beautiful, beautiful tomato garden, and, uh, but he was getting so old, and pretty soon his son was no longer available to help him out in the garden uh, because his son uh, actually was in jail uh, for some crimes. And so uh, the man sat down. He wrote his son a letter um, to just kind of lament. He said, Dear Vincent, I'm sad because it looks like I will be unable to plant our tomato garden this year. I'm getting too old to be digging up the garden, and I know if you were here, you would do it, and it would be like the old days. And then he signed it, Dad. Dad. He sent it off to prison. A couple days later, uh, he got a letter back from his son. Dear Dad, don't dig up that garden. That's where the bodies are buried. Signed, Vinny. Well, you know what happened the very next day. Police show up, FBI shows up, all sorts of equipment. They're digging up this garden. I mean, they are digging and digging and digging but they don't find anything. <laughs> Knock on the door, we are so sorry. We are so sorry for what we have done and, and, and the in ways in which we have inconvenienced you. That afternoon, the old man got a letter from his son. Dear dad, go ahead and plant the tomatoes. <laughs> That's the best I could do under given the circumstances. <laughs> It's estimated that about 70 million Americans garden every year. It's about one in every three households, whether it's a a garden at your house, a community garden, flowers, vegetables, all sorts of different things. And I remember as a kid... Uh, My dad was a gardener. My dad was an avid gardener. And I remember watching him uh, from the house. He had a really big garden. And I, I remember watching him and thinking to myself, why does he work all day at his job and then come home and work some more? It just made no sense to me. But my dad loved to dig in the dirt where there was flowers, vegetables, all sorts of things. Now as an adult, and uh, as I've gotten into gardening myself, I get it, I understand the ways in which just digging into the dirt, Uh, just there's something about it that's so healing, something so renewing, something that that frankly brings me lots and lots of hope. Well, I ran across a poem uh, that I wanted to share with you all um, that uh, I think speaks a little bit about uh, gardening, and this is what it says, the kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth, which is, means laughter. We don't use that word mirth a lot. So the song of the birds for laughter. One is nearer God's heart in the garden than any place else on earth. Isn't that good? I like that poem. I think there's a lot of biblical truth uh, to that poem. Because as we read Scripture, there's lots and lots of images and ideas of gardening uh, going on. Planting, harvesting, sowing, reaping, soils, seeds. Of course, Jesus lived in an agrarian society. And so they were always talking about gardening. There's this gardening theme that comes up over and over And so today uh, and next week, uh, we're going to talk about four different gardens in Scripture. Two today and two next week. And so in the garden, there's this idea of peace and harmony, but also there's this idea of sadness. So let us pray as we begin our our Scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God who comes to us and meets us. And Lord, as we have proclaimed this morning, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we crown you Lord of all. And so, God, as we prepare our hearts to hear your word this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our sermon series is called Into the Garden. And the first garden we're going to look at, of course, is the Garden of Creation, or, of course, we know it as the Garden of Eden. Here we go, Genesis 2. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So from the very beginning, God says, I'm a gardener. This is what I do. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And immediately we read that God was growing stuff. God had a green thumb. Now, when I plant things in the garden, it's about a 50-50. I don't know about you, but not God. This is God's garden. This is how God does it. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there, it was separated into four headwaters. So there's this idea of the garden. There's this imagery of the garden. It's beautiful. It's peaceful. It's filled with life. It's filled with hope. It's filled with joy. It's wonderful. And gardeners... Can you imagine a garden in the Garden of Eden? No decay, no weeds, no dandelions, no brambles, no burrs, no thistles, no mosquitoes. I don't think there were bunny rabbits yet, even. I don't think they came along until Satan came into the world. That's just me. I fight the bunny rabbits they're evil. They're hungry. But in this garden, everything was beautiful. Everything was perfect. Everything was just as exact. It was full of life. There was no disease on the plants. And things just grew wonderfully and beautifully and perfectly. And Scripture tells us it was good. It was all good. And it was very good. This is the Garden of Eden. This is how God created the world. And then, of course, God created Adam and Eve. The Latin term, creato ex nihilio, created from nothing. And God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and said, take care of it. Tend to it. Enjoy it. Just celebrate. And by the way, Name the animals in that beautiful garden. And so there's Adam and Eve. Dog, cat, bird, fish, cow, horse. And that's how they spent their days in the Garden of Eden. It was just, it was awesome. It was amazing. It was wonderful at every level. And it wasn't just Adam and Eve, but God was present with them in the the garden in genesis 3 it says this now god was walking in the garden in the cool of day now think about your garden that or maybe a garden that you enjoy it's in the cool of the day early in the morning or late in the evening not one of those hot sticky garden days the cool of the day so there's this idea of intimacy of relationship with God. Adam and Eve and God in this beautiful, amazing place in fellowship with one another. Now, of course, there was someone else who came into the garden after some time. Someone with malevolent intentions. We know him as Satan, the devil, the evil one. When he came into the garden, He brought his will, he brought his pride, he brought his big mouth to tempt Adam and Eve. And of course, that's exactly what he did. And he convinced them to stop enjoying the garden as they had been enjoying this beautiful garden of creation to put God in the tool shed, to take their will. And put it center. Because up until then, God was in charge. And Satan said, No, nah, come on, live a little bit, lean into what you want to do. And of course, this is where all the problems began. So in that moment, God said to Adam and Eve, You know this story, you guys got to leave the garden because this is a place, the Garden of Eden. It's a place that is filled with pleasantness. That's literally what Eden means, pleasantness. God said, you got to go because this is a pleasant place and you have now corrupted it. You have brought sin and death into the garden. And God placed some security guards in front of the garden so that nobody could return to this garden. And this is the story of the Old Testament over and over and over. God's people have been kicked out of the garden and they're anticipating, they're hoping, they're waiting to be able to go back into the garden. In Genesis three fifteen, God says this to Satan. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. spring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy in Scripture. And this is known, theologians call this the proto-evangelium. So, as you're having lunch today and you're talking about, hey, what did you guys talk about at church today? Eh, we talked about the proto-evangelium, <laughs> which means a Messiah is coming. A rescuer is coming. A savior is coming. They know the world is messed up, but it's going to get better. But they need to wait. And so for thousands of years, God's people are waiting for a rescuer, for someone to come and save them, to deliver them from the sin of the world. And of course, finally, Jesus arrives on the scene. And for three years, he teaches, he performs miracles. And he's such a polarizing figure because he does some really neat things and he says some just extraordinary things. And on the one hand, people are like, oh, this guy's so intriguing. He's so interesting. I just want to be around him. But on the other hand, Jesus is just like, he's so offensive. Who does he think he is? He says, well, I am God. I have come from the heavens to dwell among you. And many people just couldn't handle it. And if you were here last Sunday, he talked about cannibalism and all sorts of things that just did not make sense to them. And Jesus spent most of his time in the northern region of what we call Israel today, in the Galilee region. And every now and then he would go down to Jerusalem, the religious center, stir things up, and then he would go back north, back to his people, the Galilean people. And then one day... He's riding on a donkey, on a colt, and he's coming into Jerusalem. And after three years of ministry, people are like, is this the guy? Is this the guy who we have been waiting for for thousands of years to come and rescue us, come and deliver us, come and save us? And so, of course, on that Palm Sunday, people celebrated. Hosanna, God saves. He's come to rescue us. And Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that just five days later, many of the people shouting Hosanna will be shouting, crucify him. And I got, I got a kick out of us uh, singing Hosanna this morning and looking at you guys out of the corner of my eye and your arms in the air. And I thought a bunch of Lutherans waving their arms around. We do it once a year, right? Because it's a little bit safe to put our hands up and, and worship God like this. Now, you you Pentecostals, you're like, yeah, that, what's wrong with the you know what's wrong with you? But but we Lutherans, it's pretty uncomfortable, right? And some of you are like, hosanna! I get it, I get it. It's all it's all good. <laughs> but on that Sunday, people had lost their minds. They were so excited. They were just screaming. The Messiah! Could this be the Messiah? So as the week progressed, they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover meal. And Jesus goes into a place to share the upper room we know it as. And they share a meal that we know as today of the Lord's Supper. They knew it as the Passover Seder. And then after the meal, they go out into the garden. I'm going to call this the garden of affliction. We know this as the garden of Affliction. Gethsemane. The first garden was the garden of creation. This is the garden of affliction. John 18 records it this way. When Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now, you can actually go to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, today. Um, it's it's uh, just outside of Jerusalem. It's right across the Kidron Valley. Uh, when you're in Jerusalem, you can see it. It's, it's kind of on the western part, and uh, it's, it's a place that you can go and visit this very garden today. It's, it's just below uh, or it's around the, the Mount of Olives in that region. By the way, there's a couple of us uh, who are talking about uh, taking a trip to Israel uh, in a, well, we're not exactly sure when. But I know those of you who had visited Israel before have stood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know how powerful that is, that imagery to stand there. And this is a little bit what the uh, Garden of Gethsemane looks like today. It's olive trees. And Gethsemane uh, literally means olive press. It's the place where they it's filled with olive trees and where they would uh, process the olives. And in ancient times, olives were really, really important to the life of the people. And there were three different ways in which you would press the olives. So once you would cut, pull the olives off the tree, you would collect them, you would put them in bags, and then you would just put a little, and they would, you, you would hang them. And then the weight of the olives themselves uh, would just kind of drip down the, the olive oil. And that, of course, is known what we call the the, the extra virgin olive oil, right? It's it's the best olive oil. And so that's how they would collect uh, the olive oil. And they would use it, of course, for cooking, much like how you probably use olive oil for cooking. And after you've kind of collected the good stuff for cooking, then you would squish down the olives uh, just a little bit more because you needed to get more. There's lots more oil in there, but it wasn't the highest quality. It was kind of the the medium level uh, quality of olive oil. And what you would use that olive oil for is as a moisturizer, as a lotion. Think about it. In ancient times, even today, it's the Middle East, right? Hot, dry. Think cracked skin, And so they would use it. They would put it on their face. They would put it on their hands. They would use it for medicinal purposes. It was a wonderful way to keep things moisturized in in, in a culture, in a time where they didn't have lotion or or chapstick like we have today. And then after you you would press down on or or crush the, the, the olives, there was one more crushing, one more olive pressing, if you will. And this, they would take these stones and just kind of go over the olives, and they would just grind them to a pulp. And so there was almost no juice left in them. And it was, you know, kind of a, I'll just call it the leftover olive oil. And so this really low-grade oil was used for burning lamps. You didn't eat it, you didn't put it on your face, but it was really, really good for burning. Much like how we, and so they were very, it was a really important ingredient. Three levels of crushing, three levels of pressing is what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. And everybody knew about this. Now, olives are, are harvested in the fall. And so uh, it's springtime. Passover is always celebrated in the spring, right around now. And so Jesus knew this was a good time to go out into the garden of Gethsemane. It was going to be quiet because, you know, things like here were just starting to bud. And so Jesus goes into the garden with his life group, with his disciples, with his people, just a handful of people to go and pray. And it says as he was out in the garden praying, he began to sweat we think to ourselves, well, of course he was sweating. It's the Middle East. It's hot, right? But actually, it was cold. In fact, in John 18 18, it says, And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. So it was cold. It was cold like it was here this week in Bloomington. It was cold. So Jesus is sweating. Well, it's cold, but he wasn't just sweating t- tears, tears of blood. He was stressed, he was filled with anxiety. And the scripture says he was sweating as if tears of blood, but this is not a, a, a figure of speech. This is an actual uh, medical condition called hematidrosis. It's this idea that you are under so much stress, under so much anxiety, that the capillaries in your eyes just burst. And then they get mixed in with your tears. That's what's going on with Jesus. I've been stressed in my life, but I have never sweat blood before. That's the kind of anxiety and stress he's got going on in his life. And he knew that the very next day he would be arrested, he'd be tortured, he'd be hung on a cross. He was going to experience some of the most excruciating pain known to humankind. He knew that was all coming in just a matter of hours. And 24 hours later, he would be hanging on a cross. He knew that was coming. And so he stressed. He was sweating blood. But I don't think it was the stress of physical pain that he was anticipating that was causing this great anxiety, this just incredible, excruciating feeling in his life, this this crushing coming down upon him. I think it was the idea that Jesus knew what was really coming, what was going to hurt even more. What was going to be even more painful was that he was going to experience the wrath of God. See, many people have experienced torture throughout history, right? Kind of common, kind of normal. Not so much today, but, but it still happens, right? Not Jesus. He was going to experience all that physical torture, plus he was going to take on the sins of the world, He was going to take on your sins. He was going to take on my sins. He was going to take on all of our sins. The Apostle Paul says it this way in in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what Paul is saying is Jesus doesn't just kind of take on our sin like a magnet but he actually becomes sin. So Jesus doesn't just take on your pride. He becomes pride. He doesn't take on your greed. He becomes greed. He doesn't take on your lust. He becomes lust. He doesn't take on your envy. He becomes envy, gluttony, anger. Jesus becomes evil personified. I think that's why he's sweating blood. He's going to experience physical torture to be sure. But he is going to take on our sin and become our sin. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And it's simply understood this way, that my sin goes to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness comes to me. The great exchange. It makes sense, right? This is called the doctrine of imputation for you theological nerds. We don't really get it fully. We can explain it, but what does it mean that Jesus becomes our sin? He doesn't just take on our sin. He becomes our sin. So of course, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels so empty. He feels so alone He feels so evil. Jesus Christ, holy, perfect, now is the personification of evil on the cross. And so Jesus says in the garden, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And then he looks at his life group and says, stay here and watch with me. And the reason I think why this text is really important is because I know some of you struggle with depression. Some of you struggle with anxiety. Some of you struggle with this idea of God, I don't know what to do. I just feel so horrible. I just want to die. And if that's you, Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to feel that horrible inside his mind and in his heart that he just wants to die. He's like, God, I can't take it. Jesus understands. Whatever mental anguish you might be going through, Jesus has been there. He gets it. That's where he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he starts praying, he continues to pray. He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Right? He does what you and I do when we experience pain. Take it away. I don't like it. This hurts. If it's possible, take it away. Because Jesus knows that God is using him to rescue the world. And he's just like, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we can do this? Because I don't like it. It hurts. And I'm anticipating tomorrow, Good Friday. And this is the question that we ask in the 21st century over and over. I hear this question all the time, and I know you do too. And the question is simply this. Is there any other way? Is there any other way to God? I mean, don't all paths lead to God? You know? Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, aren't we just taking different paths to God? I mean, this is kind of the common understanding of the American life, of, of how we think, right? Well, all paths lead to God, right? That's what Jesus is asking. God, is there any other way? Can I just align my chakra? Can I just get a little bit more karma? Can I just travel to Mecca? I mean, let's, we can go on and on, right? Right? Is there any other way? I don't like this. And so I think we come up with this idea, this thought. This is what Americans profess. I believe that there are many paths to God. I certainly don't believe that there is only one way. There couldn't possibly be just one way. I'm a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. I mean, that, that's just kind of how Americans think, right? Well, the problem with that, that's the gospel of Oprah. And it's not based on Scripture. It's not based on anything. It's based on what we wish. It's based on what we desire. It's based on, gee, wouldn't it be neat if all Muslims, if all Hindu people, if all good people made their way to God just by doing stuff? Jesus is like, "Hey, any other way, God, can, 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 we, can we not do this? I don't want to go to the cross." Jesus asks the same question. So people ask me, "Hey, what about good people? You really believe, come on, there's good people. No, there's not. There are better people. There are better people than me that are better people than you. but there's no one who's good. There's no one who's good enough to get up to the path to God. We're all destined to sit at the bottom of the mountain. And Jesus, of course, says in the Gospel of John, this is why I have come down. Jesus makes it very clear to us. There is only one way. Later on, as we go through the Gospel of John, We're going to read this in John 14. Jesus answered uh, them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One way. That's it. And you don't even have to like it because this is what Jesus says. You don't have to like what I say. These are Jesus' words. There are not multiple ways to get to God. There is one way, according to Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, I don't even like this option. But then his prayer continues. Yet I want your will, not my will, to be done. In his Worst hour, most difficult hour in the garden of affliction, the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of pressing, the garden of crushing, when the weight of the world is on Jesus. He prays this prayer of submission. It's not about me, he says. Whatever you want, God, I'm willing to do this. The Garden of Eden, what got Adam and Eve kicked out, is their prayer was, my will be done. The Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Affliction, Jesus prayed, thy will be done. And these are the two gardens in which we live our lives, day in and day out, right? My will or God's will. And this is the tension And this is the invitation for all of us. We prefer the Garden of Eden. My will be done. I'm going to just put God in the tool shed. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to choose God on my terms. In the Garden of Gethsemane, make no mistake, it's the hard garden. It's the garden of affliction. But it's not my will. It's thy will be done. So I got a, an image here that I just spoke to me. I think this is the Garden of Gethsemane for you and for me. It's this idea of surrender. God, thy will be done. I don't get it. Thy will be done. This is what I want. Thy will be done. These, these are the ways I'm feeling, but thy will be done. And Jesus invites us to step into the Garden of Gethsemane every single day of our lives and just declare, God, I surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. And after Jesus prays this prayer, Judas shows up. Judas and a group of guys come out to arrest Jesus, of course, uh, in this betrayal the soldiers arrest him Jesus is tried 6 times 3 times in a religious court and 3 times in a civil court and he's condemned to die on a cross as he hangs on the cross he goes he dies and they lay him in the third garden and that's what we're going to pick up next week the third garden of our series, Into the Garden. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as you made the world wonderful, beautiful, the Garden of Eden. God, that was your plan. That was your original plan. And we messed it up by claiming our will be done. But God, that yet was not the end of your plan. You had more gardens to invite us to step into, to experience. And Lord, we thank you for the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Affliction, that place where you were crushed, that place where you were broken, that place where you were beaten to a pulp, that place, God, that provides hope and redemption for us, for all of humanity. But make no mistake about it, that place of surrender. And so God, as we figure out what to do with the story today, with this text, with this garden, this place of surrender, we too cry out to you, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.